Thank you for choosing Tox News, your one and only source inside the bubble of the belly of the beast. It's a lot of layers to go down. So, what is the program we have here for you today? It's coming straight from Fox News. We have a report from Laura Ingram on how Biden is too weak to steer his party away from self-destruction. And then we have Den Crenshaw saying Biden's culture wars will kill the environment, American jobs. All of these exaggerations in order to uh, keep their viewers reactionary. Uh, Again, no Militia Watch update just yet, maybe next week. But we do have these two segments analyzing the Biden administration through a white right-wing echo chamber perspective and we're gonna get into that today a little easy breezy you know we don't want to make things a little too complicated over here at talks news we like to keep it simple tight organized efficient so as the music fades out Laura Ingram comes in. I'm Laura in. Ingram. This is the Ingram Angle on a busy Friday night. Let me adjust the volume. An ugly, feudal farce. That's the focus of tonight's angle. Today, Democrats showed the country that they have zero clue about how to govern in a post-Trump age. I've spoken to Speaker Pelosi, who informed me that the articles will be delivered to the Senate on Monday. Obviously fearful of a primary challenge from AOC down the road, Chuck Schumer is pushing forward with a trial almost one year after the first impeachment farce that focused on Ukraine. Now, after initially suggesting a trial next week, the Senate reached an agreement earlier tonight to push it till Feb 9th. But folks, that doesn't change the facts. This is an egregious, vicious act of political violence against the U.S. Constitution and our country. It's also an- it's not. It's the use of our uh, constitution. Uh, the political violence stems from January 6th, where some with intent to kidnap and harm elected officials and some without that intent stormed the Capitol building. That was political violence. Uh, two officers died that day. That is political violence. Uh, several of the protesters, rioters, died that day as well at the hands of the state that is political violence impeaching a president doesn't fit that bill laura an incredibly stupid mistake that's going to hurt in fact there's multiple articles and amendments in there specifically about the procedures and when how to impeach a president it is part of the constitution and so it cannot be an act of political violence against the constitution this is her doing that whole thing of uh, in order to overturn the elections and have President Trump remain president, that was protecting America. Um, that's like that's like subtle radicalism. Joe Biden. Now, first, I want to tell everyone they have to spare us the claim that Democrats and a handful of Republicans are trying to make that they truly care about punishing individuals who incite political violence. Where was their sanctimony and demands for justice when Minneapolis was smoldering? How about when businesses and innocent people in L.A. and New York were under attack? 
And of course, like establishment Democrats did condemn all the rioting and uh, property damage that happened uh, throughout the BLM protests. Um, but there was no like head figure or president telling uh, them to go out and do this. Sure, Kamala Harris had said that there needs to be protests, but that wasn't a co-signment to property damage. Um, that only fits in the mind of conservatives and right-wingers who think that instantly, as soon as BLM hits the streets, it's going to be a riot. Um. Or how about when rioters and looters using the George Floyd case as an excuse to rampage across cities across this nation. And don't forget how left-wingers in Wisconsin occupied the state capitol several years ago to protest actions that they didn't like. <laughs> several years ago, bringing up that, that, that highlight. And I would have to go back and research like uh, everybody's response to that action in itself, which I'm not going to do. Um, but the thing that you could note from the video itself is that the people who were inside the building were unarmed. So it's not necessarily even close to equivalent to the occupation that happened in Michigan last year during the anti-lockdown protests where armed individuals with loaded rifles went into the state capitol uh, during... Uh, a session of their Congress. So, um, you know, why are we ignoring that right now, Laura? ...the state capitol several years ago to protest actions that they didn't like? Where were all the concerns raised then? Sec like, we would literally have to go back in time to, 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 to look at what the response was, and that's not really worth the effort. And, of course, like, her viewers aren't really going to remember anybody coming out and say, like, condemning those actions or anything like that. Like, that case is so old that people are just going to be like, you know what, I don't remember any outrage from that. Okay. The entire exercise is unconstitutional. As former federal appellate judge Ken Starr said last night. The president is gone. He's off to San Clemente. This is done. It's over with. That's the relevant president, not an obscure 1876 proceeding against a secretary of war. That I find it painful that very, very able people, some of whom are my friends, right. are saying, well, there's the key, there's the key <laughs> precedent. Well, it's just not. And by the way, are Democrats actually saying that it would have been constitutional for Republicans to have demanded articles of impeachment against former Vice President Joe Biden last year over what he really knew about Hunter Biden's China payoff? I mean, how would you put articles of impeachment forward when he wasn't holding office? So, like, this is, this is like, ridiculous and a really thin through line to, like, Hunter Biden's controversy among the right wing, which, like, Fox News wasn't even willing to report in its initial like outcome like when it first came out fox news refused to pick up the story but then they like still kind of like vaguely reference it in their in their segments like they're doing right now because there's other news websites who are able to go into further depth into uh supposedly the corruption in the biden family so they, it allows fox news this mainstream website that actually didn't take the risk of reporting that story to just at least reference it and remind you hey biden has close relations to the communists and it's not true like uh, you know um Hunter Biden had a hedge fund company that worked around the world. And so having these like connections through major governments, it's not a sign of corruption. It's a sign of business dealings. And so far, the Republican Senate uh, Intelligence Committee has come forward and said there is nothing to see here. 
and yet they still use it in reference to almost everything that Joe Biden does. I mean, long out of office, but I mean, could they be impeachable crimes? What would they have said about that? Third, this impeachment action is as pointless as it is vindictive. The Hill reporting that only five or six Republican senators at the most seem likely to vote for impeachment. And a conviction would require at least 17 GOP votes if every Democrat votes to convict Trump. So it's like watching a football game. You already know what the score is going to be at the end. So since we already know that impeachment will fail, Democrats plus senator, I like to call them Romkowski. I mean, back in the Trump's Ukraine impeachment, like we knew that wasn't going to pass. We, we, we knew that the Senate wasn't going to actually convict Trump, but that doesn't mean not doing it isn't important. So, I mean, like we have to do it, set precedent and let them know that incitement of riot and giving comfort to insurrectionists is not okay for a president to do. And Trump shouldn't be allowed to hold office. And like just that fact, impeaching him just for that is simply not enough. A third of COVID disinformation came from the president during the pandemic. That to me is an impeachable offense. I would have to find the, the legal grounds to fight the case of why he should be impeached just for spreading misinformation. But like that in itself should hold precedent on why Trump should never hold an official office ever again. Must believe that their votes to convict will put them on the right side of history. What self-indulgent, self-righteous goofballs they are. You don't have to believe that President Trump did everything. I mean, that's amazing that Laura just came up with their reasons for them without having them on the show to describe why they would vote to impeach the president while being in the GOP. Uh, but that's that's great. Just let's just assume their reasons and then call them narcissists. That's that's awesome. Right. Post-election. And I don't to find the impeachment mob sickening. They're not trying to address a constitutional problem here. They're trying to tag all Trump supporters as dangerous white supremacists who want to overthrow the government. Now, I, I've already covered that in the previous episode, uh, the gospel of anarcho-authoritarianism, and it's just not necessarily true. Um, like, there, there is a worry of the 74 million Americans that voted for Trump because they were okay with the aspects of authoritarianism that he was willing to engage in that, you know, featured ultra-nationalism and American exceptionalism. So there are things to worry about there. But Trump's presidency did embolden right-wing militias, and they became ever more active during the election fraud uh, you know, accusations. And so there's a, there's a deeper worry than just the, the Trump voter supporters. It's really the ones who are willing to actually commit political violence in order to ensure an authoritarian keeps moving along that ultra nationalism and that American exceptionalism. But of course, they want you to like if you're a conservative, they want you to feel that way, like you're the ones being targeted because then that bolsters strength in numbers. So they're not they're using the supporters to mask the militias. Um, so uh, good on you, Laura. Great. Right now, it's unclear who will even preside over the sham of an impeachment trial. But if it's Chief Justice John Roberts, if they want him, he should refuse on grounds that Trump's no longer president. But relying on him to do the right thing, by the way, is like relying on a 13-year-old boy to remember to clean his room before going to bed.
<laughs> so I like how she, you know, wants him to do the right thing, but then also infanticizes and like demeans him just before moving on. That's 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 great. Like if I want like Amy Comey Barrett to do something, I should definitely just call her like a sycophantic religious nutball before, you know, please and thank you. <laughs> Jesus. Another point. Going after Trump makes the Biden administration look weak. Remember when Obama pursued Bush and Cheney for war crimes? Well, of course you don't, because Obama was much too smart for that. He had too much sense. Yeah, and I, I don't remember that either, but um, I'm going to have to cite something. They are war crime presidents. Like they used uh, CIA black sites, and um, they also used uh, Gitmo to use torture methods that have been banned through uh, global treaties. So they are, uh, and you know, we could also bring up the fact that, like, through the Afghan and Iraqi war, there was a lot of civilian casualties which is a war crime um so let's see here because it said that obama would ask his ag to immediately review potential crimes in bush white house but yeah none of that really came to fruition um i think that comes from obama right there So the bottom line is that Obama sent a clear signal that unlike impeachment, which he's ruled out and which now seems a practical impossibility, he is at the least open to the possibility of investigating potential high crimes in the Bush White House. To many, the information that waterboarding, which the United States has considered torture and a violation of law in the past, was openly planned out in the seat of American government is evidence enough to at least start asking some tough questions in January 2009. So, um, yeah. And then, uh, you know, ultimately, Obama's Justice Department grants final immunity to Bush's CIA tortures. So, you know, uh, really expecting uh, uh, an administration following a crime administration doesn't necessarily mean that anything will come out of it. So, um, you know, Obama's investigation actually ultimately gave Bush in his, his, uh, conspirators of violence and cia torturing uh immunity they got immunity out of that investigation so um yeah i don't i don't know what she's really accusing obama of like splitting the lines when really at the end of the day he gave bush cheney the immunity from actual like uh, facing their consequences so uh great great uh I don't, I don't know point in your argument there laura uh highlighting that obama investigated bush but then gave him immunity cool and if like and also too like obama did more drone strikes than bush did and then trump outdid his record of drone strikes so like 
I don't know. This this whole thing is mostly pageantry and spectacle and is symbolic, but like it still needs to happen. And I really wish that we had the numbers to actually impeach Trump. Like he should have been impeached for the Ukraine call. He should have been impeached for Russia. He could have been impeached for his, um, you know, his just overall attack on asylum seekers at the border. But, you know, here we are still trying to figure out ways to spin narratives in order to dig the heels of right wing conservatives deeper into anti left, you know, ideology and reactionary policies or not policies, but reactionary beliefs. Democrats really believe that Donald Trump is disgraced and washed up with no political future. Man, they're acting really insecure about that concept. Why are they so hell bent on a second unconstitutional impeachment trial? Don't they believe that they beat him and his ideas legitimately? Finally. That's not, again, that's not what it's about. It's about his actions leading up to the insurrection that happened on January 6th. So um, let's not pretend it's anything else. A word about Republicans who think impeachment will help them score points with the Democrat establishment and maybe even convince Republicans to turn their backs on Trump. You guys are suckers and you're fools. Most in the GOP don't believe for a moment that Trump actually wanted the rioters to take over the Capitol and carry out a coup. That idea is patently absurd. There was no malicious. I mean, there's tons of videos out there throughout the Internet showing like Trump's language being pretty insightful. His intent in Trump's words to be, quote, strong and fight for him. Things, by the way, he said many times over the past five years. Many times, past five years. Like, it just reinforces the building blocks to what eventually led to the January 6th and what is going to continue leading into this reactionary, like, anti-Biden, anti-communist, anti-socialist, anti-leftist sentiment that is going to come from right-wing militias. And look at what happened to poor Liz Cheney after her impeachment grandstanding. <laughs> She's already chalked up a primary challenger. Meanwhile, Mitt Romney is a running joke, even in his home state of Utah. I mean, does he really believe the Democrats who savaged him as an out-of-touch Thurston Howell III type elite in 2012 now are clamoring to collaborate with him on policy? They despise him now as much as they did back then. And that's because he wasn't like an absolute Trump loyalist and like what Trump wanted out of the GOP was absolute loyalty, which like, again, is another aspect of authoritarianism, which should be denounced and set precedents against. Um, and I think Mitch, uh, Mitt Romney did that. I'm not a fan of Mitt Romney, but he at least stood away from the radicalization of the GOP party and said, we need to remain, uh, you know, at least still right of center and not move farther. Right. Which I can, I can commend him for that. But like overall, um, you know, it, it does show that there is a bit of a fracture in the Republican party that some of them really demand, this like absolute loyalty around a demagogue it's idol worship and it's insane republicans supporting impeachment believe a conviction would be worth it in order to get the trump cancer out of the republican party that's the real reason they're doing it yet no serious political observer could possibly think that the party that turned out in historic numbers for trump is about to let boomerang back to the policies of the bush cheney era 
Let's hope with this delay that Republicans will have more time to grow a back. I mean, Trump's policies were the Bush era, but on like steroids, you know, like the redistribution of wealth going higher to the top and, you know, drone strikes, the anti-immigration, the extension of executive power, Trump bragging about how he can like use article two to do whatever he wants like that was built around the cheney president or not cheney but you know cheney was you know heavily a supporter of the executive theory uh that article two grants the president uh you know unlimited unlimited powers like cheney helped build that yellow brick road for trump backbone we hope they hear from you many of their constituents to tell them that we want you to fight for conservative policies and against the ridiculous Democrat sham that we're seeing in the Biden administration tonight. They want to bury the America first populist movement, the Democrats do. It's up to Republicans to prevent them from doing it, resist all the way. But my friends, if Democrats insist on going through with this unconstitutional impeachment, Republicans have to ensure that they pay a heavy political price. And if Joe Biden, by the way, thinking about all of this, if he were really smart, if he really had his wits about him, truly capable of seeing what it, how this would be actually in his own interest to do this, he would call Schumer and call off the impeachment dogs. But Joe's not going to do that because... I almost thought she was going to say pardon Trump. He's just too weak to steer his party away from its own self-destructive ways. And that's the angle. Joining me now is Jonathan Turley, so, George Washington. It's not that like Biden is also interested in setting this precedent, but it's rather that he's lost control of his party. Um, and, you know, that's just a convenient narrative, a part of like, you know, Biden not being mentally capable of holding office. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I mean, Biden might be full for impeaching Trump. So like, that's, that's great that she would just assume his position and then call his weakness out of her assumption. University law professor and constitutional law expert and Fox News contributor. Jonathan, is there any way that John Roberts could decide that he will not preside over this impeachment? Could he just refuse? Well, he can. You know, he doesn't, he's not a bus. He doesn't pick up everyone uh, that he stops next to. You know, he has to determine uh, whether this is a, a function that is given to him by the Constitution. The problem is that the Constitution states that the Chief Justice shall preside of a trial of the president. The president in this trial will be Joe Biden, and I doubt the Democrats want to remove him. And so there's a threshold issue for Roberts. He might not even be asked, but that will beg the question of who is being tried. It's clearly not the president, and it's clearly not to remove him from office. It is a private citizen who the Senate will vote on removing from an office that he's already left. Now, that creates a serious threshold issue for the Senate. In fact, they may have the most consequential vote ahead of them uh, in their entire tenure as senators, and that is whether to go forward with this trial. The Constitution states that the principal uh, question for impeachment is whether to remove the president, and that creates a rather curious vote. And the problem is that constitutional novelties 
can easily become constitutional nuisances. We've already had a snap impeachment where the House didn't even hold a single hearing to consider the language or implications of the impeachment, give a formal opportunity for the president to respond. And now we're going to hand a snap impeachment over to a retroactive trial. That is a very serious question for all these senators to weigh. And I'll point out one other thing. There were only two cases in history where this type of retroactive measure was used. And the first one was, was with William Blunt. And when that happened, many of the signers of the Constitution were in Congress. Most of them were still alive. Blunt himself was a, was a signer. And he was a former, he was a senator who had been expelled from the Senate. The Senate refused to hold the trial. So when the ink had just barely dried on the Constitution, the Senate had a threshold vote and said, we're not going to do this. Yeah, well, you could pretty much understand the intent of the framers when a lot of the framers were right there. You didn't have to do a, go much into the legislative history, if, even if you believe that, <laughs> because they were there. That's a fascinating point. Uh, Jonathan. Also, I want to I uh, point out, out to something that a lot of legal scholars have said in response to your argument just now about the removal. You can't remove him from office because he's already gone from office. So a group of these scholars penned an open letter. Don't you love the open letters? Um, that argues that the disqualification from holding future office is equal to the removal from the office in the Constitution. Now, I, I don't understand how that could be possibly read into the Constitution, but these are some, you know, very well-respected constitutional scholars who are arguing with us. Why are they wrong? Well, I know, and, and like many of them, I actually responded to that letter on my blog today because I believe it's ultimately wrong. But I have to stress, these are good faith arguments. This has been an open debate. I've wrestled with this since 1999. I talked about the value of even retroactive trials. But what I believe today is that those values are outweighed by the cost, and I don't agree with what the letter says. Disqualification is an optional penalty that the Senate may impose, but it is only considered after the main task of impeachment is done. You've tried and removed a president. And when they talk about future disqualification, it's in a sentence that is meant to limit the power of the Senate, to say, you can't go beyond removal or disqualification. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that these things are equal in, the, in that sense. And, and by the way, Richard Blumenthal says that we can do this trial in just a matter of days, Jonathan. But isn't that also up to the president's defense team? I mean, what if they want to put on a multi-day or even a few weeks defense? Uh, are we going to have the, the, the presiding well, well, judge say, no, you can only do X, day, X number of days? So they want, to, they want to have a snap impeachment happen really fast, and they hope take him out by, at the knees. Right. This is all improvisational. And that's dangerous when it has to be also constitutional. And, you know, I did the last judicial impeachment trial with colleagues uh, that was held in the Senate. I was, and uh, it took us months uh, to, uh, to present that case. Uh, they're about to uh, try a president in a blink without a hearing in the House, in a snap no, impeachment, and now a retroactive trial. No. No. Donna Turley, thank you so much for being here tonight.
Um, so I don't necessarily think that there has to be a hearing in the house. Uh, in case of removal of the president, duh, 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 whenever the president transmits to the president pro tempore, duh, 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 uh, whenever the vice president uh, duh, 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 transmits to the president, has written, determines by two-thirds vote yeah i'm not seeing anything about necessarily a hearing for that it's just usually after 48 hours within receiving the letter of impeachment congress has to assemble and the house of representatives by a two-thirds vote of both houses that the president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office the vice president shall continue to discharge the same as acting president uh yeah i'm not seeing really anything here about the uh them being able to uh or them having to have some sort of trial so i'm not or some sort of hearing when the articles of impeachment are produced um but yeah, I've already read this amendment before on here, but I'll read it again. Amendment 14, section 3. No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature or as an executive or judicial officer of any state, to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same, or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof, but Congress may by a vote of two-thirds of each house remove such disability. So. Yep, that is what they are using to block Trump from... running again so when he said that he doesn't know of the amendment or uh yeah he doesn't know the amendment or the precedent in the constitution it's amendment 14 section 3 and of course that's not any information that you're going to get provided when you know the the narrative is to be steered and not necessarily given any objective truths so uh that's where we're at here and yeah you could say that it's pointless either because trump's out of office or it's pointless because it's going to ultimately fail but if the democrats or the the system that is isn't willing to hold trump accountable for his actions it will at least send the message to the rest of the the supporters voters and what have you that either the government is ineffective or at least we are willing to attempt to hold uh people in positions of power accountable so her argument to not do it is um 
a pretty weak one at that, and it only really tries to skirt the issue away from Trump's actual actions and allows it builds the case on why yeah appointing Trump is is pointless when it really you know even though it it could fail it's not pointless because accountability is something that we need to have in a government that claims uh checks and balances and of course not for Trump holding office ever again but to pivot away from that uh we're going to move to Dan Crenshaw saying Biden's culture wars will kill the environment and american jobs Time, I am Brian Kilmeade, but Brett gave that away. Another day, another flurry of executive orders. This time, Joe Biden setting his sights on the cratering economy, kinda. He says we have a moral obligation to get people back to work. We cannot, will not let people go hungry. We cannot let people be evicted because of nothing they did themselves. They cannot watch people lose their jobs, and we have to act. We have to act now. This is an economic imperative, a growing economic consensus that we must act decisively and boldly to grow the economy for all Americans, not just for tomorrow, but in the future. Sounds good, right? The president claims to be taking decisive action during these dark days of the pandemic, which is true, but it's not to help you, your family, your neighbor, your town. He's fulfilling campaign promises that I contend won't add a single job, but will erase plenty of jobs. Yesterday, with a stroke of a pen, Biden killed the Keystone XL pipeline and an estimated 71,000 jobs, many of them good paying union jobs. He touted on the campaign. <laughs> All right. So I've heard a lot of statistics around the Keystone XL pipeline and 71,000 jobs is definitely the newest number that I've heard. Um, I've heard somewhere between like 11,000 and I've heard somewhere upwards to some dude on Twitter saying 42,000. But it's not it's just not the truth. And they don't necessarily break down the jobs in themselves. I had done a little bit of research after seeing this guy uh posting on twitter and i was like well i should just go get the numbers myself and um let's see here scroll 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 so uh tc energy originally projected that 10,400 jobs were going to be needed but those were temporary positions for four to eight months during the construction of the keystone pipeline so for four to eight months it would have created 10,400 jobs but the State Department estimated 50 people would have been employed, some in Canada. So we can't necessarily say that we lost a ton of jobs in America because some of those 50 people would have been in Canada where the pipeline initially starts before traveling down to Texas to deliver the oil. But 35 of those would have been permanent. 35 of those 50 jobs would have been permanent, while 15 would have remained temporary. So this uh, 70,000 jobs obviously comes from like, oh, well, there's other, you know, uh, businesses that would have been buying the oil and those those indirect jobs are affected by this, too. And, you know, if they're indirectly affected by the Keystone XL pipeline, then it's not necessarily a direct job loss there that we can attribute to Joe Biden. Uh, they just want the numbers as high as possible to make this sound as egregious as possible. But the right wing is working really hard to make sure that the obfuscation of the actual numbers of jobs is just swirling around so that nobody can get a clear view. You just need to know that thousands, tens of thousands of jobs were lost when 
it ultimately down the line we lost 50 jobs for that pipeline trail he was all about unions remember the move will likely erase energy costs raise them up i should say and hurt our relationship with canada more on that later in the show he also halted the southern border wall already paid for a cost of billions of dollars at least five thousand jobs i think a lot more but that's not all today he mandated a federal minimum wage of fifteen dollars a move here's the thing though is that yeah like the border wall construction ending those jobs becoming uh, basically invalid but we have a major infrastructure problem like there's still plenty of roads to fix uh, Flint finally starting to get one the reparations from a restitution from drinking all that lead water but there's still a lot of work to do in their in their water piping system to you know renovate all of that uh, piping that eventually led to all that lead poisoning so like we're gonna pretend here for Fox News sake that there isn't a reappropriation for these jobs and that there isn't you know reconstruction and infrastructure to work on inside the country that doesn't have to deal with a racist ass border wall that nonpartisan CBO the Congressional Budget Office says will eliminate 3.7 million jobs how does this make sense the Wait, increased what? cost of labor wage of $15, a move that nonpartisan CBO, the Congressional Budget Office says, will eliminate 3.7 million jobs. How does this make sense? The increased cost of labor is also guaranteed to hurt small businesses that are hanging on by a thread during the pandemic. Sadly, it's not the time to give people a raise because all boats... <laughs> it is, it is, this is a debate that's been going on a bit too. Um, but uh, yeah, with the uh, $15 minimum wage, it's still not enough because the amount of productivity that has increased since, you know, the last uh, minimum wage increase, which was like $7, um, you know, the federal minimum wage moving alongside inflation and productivity levels should be upwards to $23 to $24 per hour. So them freaking out about still barely achieving that line, like $15 should have happened 10 years ago. Um, and there's a great video by Second Thought going on to the minimum wage debate. And I understand that small businesses may have a bit more issue of getting the $15 out to, uh, to their employers if they're barely making the line here. But this argument is so asinine in the fact that like everybody's wages are kept low so that capitalists are in order to make profit. So if capitalists aren't willing to make less of a profit in order to have people earning livable wages, then um, that's, that's, that's on the side of the business owners. Like, and I'm talking about Amazon, Walmart, these big businesses that obviously, like Walmart made $129 billion in profits last year. And like, that is a part of the fact that their, uh, their, their workers earn a very unlivable wage and have to go on food stamps. And then sub basically the United States government subsidizes their wages because they don't actually earn enough through their 40 hour paying job. And yet, Walmart executives are willing or are are willing to, yeah to keep 129 billion dollar profits into their own pockets. So when we're talking about the wage debate, it's the the whole thing is that capitalists aren't willing to sacrifice their ever increasing profits. Like every quarter they have to be making more money than they did the last and uh minimum minimum wage increase is going to affect how they reappropriate that money but they are not willing to take the l there and earn less so that people who earn their labor uh who who earn the capital through their labor can earn more and um that's 
that's that's that's a fault of the capitalists. And what he's saying here too is that if if, if it's going to hurt the water rising for everybody, it's but the economy is supposed to help everyone and uplift everyone. But when it's time to uplift the minimum wage earners, it's it's going to stifle that. Regardless of the fact, this Forbes Forbes article here is that the top one percent of U.S. households hold 15 times more wealth than the bottom 50% combined. So they're not willing to make the 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 decrease of their wealth to increase the wealth of the bottom 50%. So this argument is nonsense because the money is there. The the top 1% have a combined wealth of 3.4 or 34.2 trillion dollars which is 30% of all household wealth in the United States. And they're not willing to share it through a minimum wage increase. They want their wealth to continue growing. And so the, the, the top just keeps growing and growing and growing, which is why we have a wealth income inequality issue in this country. And the, the bottom is constantly berated on how they're not allowed to earn a few more extra dollars per hour. I mean, even just during 2020, the, 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 the richest people earned yet again over a half a trillion dollars in their combined wealth, while the rest of the United States, eight, like eight million went below the poverty line while this happened. So the boat is rising, but you have to already have major amounts of capital for it to rise. So if you're sitting at the bottom, you're drowning. Boats rise, right? What kind of president does this unilaterally on day one and day two without even taking the time to explain his actions? He signs, he mumbles, he closes, and we move. I'll tell you, one that's more concerned about pandering to the far left because he has got a base of American workers who are counting on him and his left-wing policies. So for anyone who's about to lose... That's weird that it's pandering to the left who depends on improving working class conditions so in the end i feel like that argument is actually it's more pandering to the working class who are stuck on a federal minimum wage of seven dollars which it should have according to inflation gone up to 23 or 24 dollars so we're literally keeping people on subsistent living wages the bare fucking minimum and he is arguing against the case of working class people starting to get closer to a living minimum wage, which it's still at $15 would not be enough. Lose their job because of these executive orders. Do not worry. The Biden administration has some advice for you. It's a little different, but let's listen together. So for those workers, the answer is somebody else will get a job? The answer is that we are very eager to see those workers continue to be employed in good paying union jobs, even if they might be different ones. Here with reaction, Republican Congressman Dan Crenshaw of Texas. Congressman, I, I even just texted you. Uh, I'm, I'm so disappointed with what's happened over the last two or three days. There's no conversation. There's no give and, give and take. There's no Kevin McCarthy. Let's do something together here. It was a great speech, perhaps. But is there, is there any yeah. indication there's any going to be any bipartisanship and this is going to help the economy? 
Now, they're going to keep talking about unity, but they don't want to unify behind anything that the American working class might actually want. So you, you couldn't have said it better than what you just said, Brian. You know, you talked about canceling the Keystone Pipeline. That's tens of thousands of union jobs. Union jobs, by the way, that pay a lot better than jobs for, say, solar and wind. Okay, on average, $20,000 better pay for oil and gas jobs than for solar and wind. And by the way, most of those jobs for solar and wind manufacturing, those are in China. Okay, so that's what Pete Buttigieg is talking about when he says other jobs. He's not talking about good-paying American jobs. And they need to confront this fact. And they need to confront the fact that when you drastically raise the minimum wage... I mean, there's no basis for the accusation that he just said that all of those jobs are in China. There's no evidence, and he, he cites no source. He just says it. All of a sudden, to $15 an hour, you're going to cut you're going to cut out millions of jobs across America. That's not according... And again, that's because corporations aren't willing to sacrifice a bit of profit in order to increase wages and keep their employees. They 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 purposefully uh, what mow the lawn of employees so that their profits can continue to climb and increase their wealth. So again, this isn't about wages being too high. It's about profits not willing to go low, and not even to the point of like like 129 billion dollars for Walmart. Come on. Come on. According to me, that's according to the Congressional Budget Office. I've got small businesses in my district begging me to do something about this. You can't let them do this, they say. We will, we will immediately lose our business. We're already hanging on by a thread. So listen, here, here's what it comes down to. If you're going to claim that you're the party of the American working class, you actually have to support working. All right, that's a requirement to be a working class party, and they just won't do that. We had a meeting today. And I don't we know how anything he provided is, is like indication that tr uh, Biden is against people working. Like in the increase of $15 minimum wage is entirely pro-worker. You're saying, can you name one policy that was intentionally put out there by the Trump administration that would eliminate jobs? All he cared about was jobs to the detriment maybe of other things. In fact, when you hear what Canada's perspective is, they are enraged. As much as they're happy to have a Democratic president and perhaps Donald Trump out, they wanted this XL pipeline. They know it's clean. They know it's passed five separate environmental uh, tests put out by the Obama administration. It was going to be American yeah. steel that was made. I want you to listen to the Alberta premier. His name is Jason Kenney. I mean, when one of its first runs, it already spilled over 300,000 gallons of oil. So. Um yeah on this what he says is a betrayal by joe biden it's very frustrating yeah, I, mean, that I mean if you don't here i'll look it up too i don't want to be dan crenshaw and just throw out there I don't want to just throw uh, things out there without a follow-up. Um, it's almost 400,000 gallons in November 2019. So yeah, Keystone Pipeline leaks over 300,000 gallons of oil in North Dakota. Uh, do, 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 do. The pipeline, which is operated by TC Energy and carries tar sands oil from Canada through seven states, leaked out about half an acre of land in Walsh County. Half an acre of land. So, um, yeah. 
And, and like, if you look up the history too, there's a ton of court battles going on about the Keystone XL pipeline. It was an incredibly expensive project that didn't actually come to any fruitions. And a lot of it came from the initial protests against it. So um, this, this pipeline, uh, I'm glad it failed because all it would have really done was continue to probably spill more oil over the coming years. And 300,000 gallons is incredibly hard to clean up. But it created jobs to clean it up, so we can give them props for that. One of the first acts of the new president was, I think, to disrespect America's closest friend and ally, Canada. Uh, evidently, he's a liberal in Canada. Yeah. Dan, it isn't just me and you talking. There's a lack of logic here. Well, also, it's bad for the environment, all right? And this is what the, this is the radical left doesn't really care about the environment. This is really about the culture war to them. We know that the right doesn't care about uh, uh, the, the, the environment. Like, a lot of their people have been denying the existence of it. They've created uh, advertising campaigns that build the idea that it's a hoax. And they're also unwilling to do anything to actually mitigate the emissions coming, like, tw 2025. And that's why they shit on the uh, Paris Climate Accords, even though that's at least an agreement by major powers to start doing something, at least agreeing on a baseline value of climate change. Um, but, like, let's let's not pretend that the Republican Party gives two shits about the environment and so in that case they're not allowed to say who or who, who does and who doesn't care about environmental issues dan cranshaw is not allowed to to comment on that with his party alignment of close to uh climate deniers so let's let's just not even go there and for them fossil fuels are just evil they don't know why they don't have to tell you why you're stupid if you ask why but they just want to tell you they're evil now the truth is when they 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 harm the environment like you, you they always claim that fracking is safe but fracking goes down into water deposits in uh the ground which do tend to lead to water supplies and it actually poisons them so um it it it, it extracts the um the 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 natural gas from those water deposits but in order to do that they have to have their own chemicals that will extract and simply isolate this the the natural gas into what they capture but what they leave behind in those water deposits are those chemicals that are needed to extract the natural gas so it effectively poisons those water deposits so here at Tox News, they're not just evil just because. It's bad for the environment. Oil spills and ruins land, it ruins water, it ruins. And so unless we can take a shift in our ecology to match our economics, we are going to continue causing damage on the environment. So Dan Crenshaw saying nobody knows what they're talking about because he can't actually build a valid argument on why they don't know what they're talking about. When you build pipelines to transport oil and gas, you're doing it in a much cleaner and safer way than, say, transporting it by truck or by train. You're also, you're also helping North American energy independence, which is what our Canadian friends are alluding to. Because if we're not producing it, and if we're not exporting... Imagine if we had solar panels and wind energy, how much more independent we would be. There would be no need for the wars in the Middle East had we done that pre-2000. But since 
we were dependent on the petrodoll uh, dollar and the exchange of oil using the petrodollar we became incredibly dependent on oil so it's not even just an energy dependence if we keep or independence if we keep relying on oil because oil isn't always going to be in the united states and cleaner cleaner produced oil and cleaner produced natural gas so the rest of the world and the need of the petrodollar completely keeps us dependent on oil you know who is? Russia, Venezuela, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and they all do it dirtier than we do. So you're, because of Joe Biden's policies, you're actually going to see an increase in global emissions. Okay, you're going to see an increase in manufacturing over in China. The Chinese love this stuff because they love selling us their solar panels and their solar and, and their and their wind turbines back here so that we clear our land, build a bunch of But that's also part of the fact that we don't actually incentivize the creation of the businesses that create these solar panels and wind energy so we have to like move away from constantly subsidizing oil companies and start incentivizing renewable energy companies um yeah and i mean we're not going to stop buying chinese products because most of the manufacturers like apple iphones and all of our computers and all of our little knickknacks and commodities that we buy are usually manufactured in china so there's a lot it's much more complicated than den crenshaw's willing to to give out here but i also have to assume that's because he thinks that politicians know better than citizens and why why actually inform citizens like so that they're fully knowledgeable about the aspects of here why do that because really they're just going to stand in the way of progress transmission lines and screw up our energy independence all right th this is what they love seeing they love seeing the paris and i'm just i really i have to stress this that relying on oil will never make us energy independent getting it from the sun and storing it in batteries is much more independent than relying on oil and the trade of the petrodollar the petrodollar is the only thing that can be exchanged for oil so we are wholly absolutely dependent on oil and that is to the detriment of the success of our country especially as more countries especially europe eastern europe are becoming more reliant on renewable energies and less on oil which is going to further the line hurt our economy because we keep relying on oil climate accords going forward because they can keep polluting while our economy gets hurt even though we're the ones even under the trump administration that reduced carbon emissions more than any other country in the world so this is actually uh, yeah no no not compared to germany let's uh let's let's fact check that one Yeah, no, Dan, no. Oh, man. We were in fourth place, apparently, uh, with a negative 6% decrease from the year 2000 to 2014. Uh, am I able to actually get something that uh, is more recent? Uh, let's see. Uh, projected emissions in Saudi Arabia, Russia, and the United States are far greater than what it would take to limit war uh, warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. So the United States actually is still showing inclines in uh, CO2 emissions. Um, but what he... Uh, 
2017. The U.S. leads all countries in reducing carbon emissions, but that was 2017. Um, uh, yeah, since 2005, carbon dioxide emissions have declined by 758 million metric tons. But again, that is uh, prior to Trump administration. <sighs> So, Investopedia from October 27, 2020 has the five countries that produce the most carbon dioxide. The top five countries that produce the most CO2 are China, the U.S., India, Russia, and Japan. So, yeah, not us. Not us. Um, let's see. Poland has 1% of the share of CO2 emissions. Australia has 1%, Brazil has 1%, South Africa has 1%, Turkey has 1%, United Kingdom has 1%, Germany has 2%, uh, United States, 15 And that's October 27th, 2020. The U.S. is the second largest emitter of CO2, with approximately 5.41 billion metric tons of carbon dioxide emissions in 2018. The largest sources of CO2 emissions in the U.S. comes from power generation, transportation, and industry. Even though the U.S. government undertook significant efforts to reduce the reliance on coal for electricity generation, the country has become a major producer of crude oil. Also, the U.S. economy is heavily reliant on the transportation sector, which burns petroleum for trucks, ships, trains, and planes. U.S. consumers especially depend on their cars as their primary means of transportation, and this also contributes to the CO2 footprint through gasoline and diesel. Another large contributor to CO2 emissions in the U.S. is industry, which burns fossil fuels for energy. Also, the U.S. chemical sector uses various chemical reactions necessary to produce goods from raw materials, which in the process emit CO2. So, what he said, not true bad for the environment it's bad for the economy it doesn't make any sense but it's good for the radical left culture i honestly i love the fact that he says if we don't produce and burn more oil it hurts the environment like what a fucking dumb argument to make wars which is really what they're after what is also very interesting is we still get more fossil fuels from canada than anybody else we're their number one customer and if you want to reestablish relations with our neighbor joe biden's first call is to justin trudeau and i ask you dan just logically if canada means that much to joe biden where your first international call is to justin trudeau why does this make sense can you clue me in in washington who is joe biden just answering which is also funny too because like uh canada also like wanted the united states to stay in the paris climate accords so and they never left it either but um the primary source of renewable energy in canada comes from moving water in 2018 hydro accounted for 67.5 percent of canada's total renewable energy so they're much more closer to um uh, s sustainable and independent energy generation than the United States. Drink to. Well, I think we just did answer that. It's to the radical left. It's 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 the culture warriors. It's the postmodernist progressives. Okay, again, they want you to believe certain things about America. All Ooh. right, they want you. I'm surprised he didn't say cultural Marxists. 
to it's believe close. it's evil. They want you to believe that you should sacrifice, but the Chinese don't have to. Gotcha. They want you to believe that, that your jobs should be... I mean, the unfortunate thing is, and it is in a lot of these things, like when you have the treaties against nuclear armament and also like the Paris Climate Accords, is that you do need the the word of these countries to take the steps necessary. But um, if the United States isn't leading the way in renewable energy, another country will, and then our oil will become completely useless. We'll just have it and just sitting there, basically earning nothing. So um, if we don't take the steps necessary to be the first to rely on renewable energy and effectively move away from oil, then other countries will, and we will suffer because of that sacrificed for other jobs that they prefer even though they pay less and they're not good jobs okay they want you to believe that the seven and he has no citation or uh yeah no sources for that claim the 17.6 commission uh should be abolished because it teaches you that america is too good right all right and they would rather replace that with the 1619 project this is who he's listening to <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the 1776 project is something that Woodrow Wilson actually would have been proud of. The revisionist, the lost cause, the guy would have been proud of the 1776 uh, report, which basically says that uh, criticizing the founding fathers for slavery does more damage than uh, their actual actions of slavery for 200 years. Um, so yeah, let's, God damn, like, yeah, that, that white supremacist lost cause revisionism in the white house does need to be repealed. Um, with the 1619 project, it's still like a theory that tries to through line the own, the, the property of slaves to the American revolution. Um, and I'm not sure we need to completely adopt that, but it does need to be taught in history that once the first slave landed in America, then did America's slave trade further the development of this nation. Um, it, it's not something that we could ignore that this country was built on the back of slaves. That's not something that we need to ignore. No. Judge wasn't done there. He was asked about the highways and what he's going to do as transportation secretary because the former mayor of South Bend, who is average in every way, shape or form, said this about our highways. So take, get a pen ready. I did not know this. I also recognize that at their worst, misguided policies and missed opportunities in transportation can reinforce racial and economic inequality by dividing or isolating neighborhoods and undermining government's basic role of empowering Americans to thrive. Okay, uh, we have racist highways now. They are, they're, they're very racist highways. I live next to We're not just talking about highways, we're talking about like, you know, public transportation. So like just isolating that is severe reductionism. And yeah, just furthers the, the, the easy discussion for this guy who doesn't really care about the working class and how they get to work. To a highway um i didn't realize that was a racist highway i was living next to um look this 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 is what happens when when the progressive left takes over the culture and takes over the democrat party there's no more liberals left than they haven't done that there th this is moving uh public transportation to ensure that uh uh, the most vulnerable are able to go to work and earn those wages that they so desperately want to keep low um that is not progressive that should have just been a thing 
the Democrat Party. No more ideals of, of neutral application of law or neutral justice or universal principles, right? All of these old liberal principles that, that we used to agree on are no longer agreed upon. So they see everything through a social justice lens and through critical race theory, wherein every, everything, every problem that you see, and the only way to solve said problem is to view it through a racial lens. And that's exactly what Pete Buttigieg is doing right now. He's, he's completely unqualified for this job. He's certainly bright, served our country, uh, but he's going to be transportation secretary and is able to do late night shows. So it's an interesting time in America. That used to be a rarity. Uh, Congressman Dan Crenshaw, you can officially start your weekend now, but knowing you, it's going to be a working weekend. <laughs> As always, great to have you. Great to, great to be with you, Brian. Thanks. Uh, I really appreciate you scrambling for us. Meanwhile, Yikes. So I've moved into the corner of the video here to get into this Academic Times study that says critics say policies stifle growth. The opposite may be true. And not too long ago, an article had come out that solar energy is actually the cheapest form of energy generation. Uh, so, you know, saying that create, doing uh, solar panels is too expensive is no longer an argument. But I just want to read this to close it out since they're so concerned about the uh, oil jobs that were lost with the Keystone XL pipeline. So the article reads, environmental regulation can in fact increase worker productivity and overall capital accumulation, according to new research from Italian economists, with green taxes having the largest potential effect on productivity. Their findings published January 12th in International Economics confirm the Porter Hypothesis, an economic theory that predicts that environmental policy will lead to innovative growth and productivity, and counter previous theories that environmental policy is a burdensome cost to companies, the researchers noted. Quote, in the past, firms were somehow against the environmental stringency, the environmental policy stringency, said Roberta DeSantis, a senior economist at the Italian National Institute of Statistics and co-author of the research. Quote, adding this might somehow incentivize firms to implement environmental policy. The Porter hypothesis was first proposed by Michael Porter and Klaas van der Linde in the Journal of Economic Perspectives in 1995. The theory says, and DeSantis's research confirms, that when strict environmental policies are implemented, it forces companies to innovate, which in turn improves production techniques in an environmentally friendly way. Quote, So it is basically a win-win solution, because on the one side, firms improve their competitiveness, on the other side, it also adds to the environment, DeSantis said. To conduct their uh, research, oh, I'm sorry, I got a little, little burp bubble. Ooh. To conduct their research, DeSantis and her co-authors examined 14 countries that are members of the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, primarily those in Europe and North America that have closely followed OECD environmental guidelines between 1990 and 2015. The researchers measured environmental adjusted labor productivity as environmental adjusted gross domestic product for pollution abatement in per hour terms, which allowed for the consideration of a country's technological capabilities and economic structure. The researchers found that both market and non-market based policy measures positively affect labor and multi-factor productivity growth, a measure of economic performance that compares the amount of output to the amount of combined inputs, such as labor, capital, energy, and materials. 
Market-based policies include taxes, renewable energy credits, energy-efficient credits, and feed-in tariffs, among others. Non-market-based policies include environmental uh, standards, such as limits on emissions, subsidies for research and development, and government expenditures. Green taxes or taxes levied on businesses and individuals in order to promote environmentally friendly practices had the largest impact on multi-factor productivity, though DeSantis and her colleagues wrote that green taxes need to be prepared with complementary redistributive policies, such subsidies, such as subsidies and grants for companies transitioning to environmentally friendly practices in order to avoid damaging productivity. Quote, what is clear is that you have to face this increasing environmental policy stringency, and as a firm, probably the best is if you try to create this win-win solution so it's passed through an improvement in technology, DeSantis said. This is the third paper DeSantis has written about environmental policy in addition to examining the Porter hypothesis. She also studied how environmental policy impacts international trade. Quote, I found it very interesting that starting from the 2007 to 2008 financial crisis, many countries were forced to find alternative economic growth sources, and the green economy was found among the most promising, she said. Other potential research avenues, DeSantis added, include further study of how specific policies trigger productivity growth and the redistributive impact of new environmental policies implemented by the European Commission. Quote, according to what we found in this paper, it will have a positive impact on productivity, but what is not in the paper is what might be the redistributive impact, quote, unquote, such as the European Commission supporting EU countries that depend on fossil fuel and carbon commodities. The European Union has already allotted 150 billion euros to support these countries through its just transition mechanism, part of the European Green Deal effort to create a climate neutral economy in Europe by 2050. Quote, basically, this is a very promising sector, DeSantis said, obviously because it will help the environment, but also because it might provide a lot of employment and GDP growth. So when somebody like Dan Crenshaw gets on Fox News and argues against this, he is not using any study or any research. He is merely a shill for the oil companies in order for them to continue reaping profits at the detriment of the environment and that has been talks news for today so i hope you like subscribe rate review follow me on twitter at toxin pod and please please for the love of god fight for the environment and uh you know i'm not a huge fan of joe biden but the the routes that the the right are taking in order to come combat joe biden's policies those aren't the routes you want to take baby not at all. And this is when the outro music is supposed to come in, I think. Um, hello? Is there, is there, is there? Oh, all right. That's been Talks News. I love you.